0: You know, Liz, it feels like a million years ago that I studied social work, like a really, really long time ago. And the way that it often feels like that is because of the people that I've known also in our social work community for just as long. Does it feel like it was yesterday for you
1: or a long time? Like it does feel like yesterday. But when I think about that it's the early 80s that is forever ago
0: it's a long time right like we've been doing this for a really long time and um oh everyone hello we're on social work stories podcast by the way but we've just gone straight into a conversation um i'm here with my beautiful friend liz murphy I'm Mim Fox, and we're talking about how long we've known our fellow social workers for. And the reason we're talking about this is because the episode we have for you today is uh, a recording that was done with, in conversation with a friend of mine who I studied social work with a million years ago. She's, um, her name's Sarah Wayland, and for those of you who, who are up to date with the uh, research and literature in the area of missing persons and complicated grief. Sarah is someone whose name you'll recognise. Sarah and I knew each other because we did our undergraduate degrees together and suffice to say we were not our most professional selves through that degree.
1: You see, <clears throat> if we weren't the professionals that we are, I'd be going, let's go down that path. I, I'm <laughs> like, I want to know more about that, but we're not. We're going to get back to complicated. There grief are so so
0: many stories, so many stories to share down that path, but we're not going to do that. We're going to talk more about the fact that Sarah and I have met each other at many different points on our in our careers. And we both started off in practice and then moved at some point over to academia. What's really great about the story that Sarah is sharing with us today is that she actually tracks that journey for us, Liz. Mm. So she starts by talking about how she found her way into missing persons as her area of passion and expertise, and then her practice years, and then also how she's moved into research and teaching through that.
1: And the other thing she does, Nim, is she tells a beautiful practice story about some women that she worked with and I like that stuff for me was just beautiful I think we've got a master storyteller on our hands as well so um maybe what we do is we just listen to it right now I'm sure everyone's going to really enjoy this and then we'll come back and we'll go down the various paths that Sarah takes us on sounds good see you in a minute
2: From a practice perspective, I've been a social worker for the last 20 years, so graduated in 1998 and spent a lot of time in those first few years of being a social worker, really trying to find my place in terms of where I wanted to work and what sort of people, families, groups I wanted to work with in the community. I spent some time moving between disability services, child protection services here in Australia, in the UK and New Zealand. And I think I finally started to find my feet as a social worker, five or six years after I graduated. I decided to take a job with New South Wales Attorney General's department, working in a new counselling service that had just received funding for three months worth of um, to be able to employ someone for three months, working with families of missing people. And what I noticed from the description in terms of the sorts of workers that they were looking for was that they just really wanted somebody to provide counselling interventions. There was no descriptions in terms of, you know, what theoretical framework you should come from in terms of how you deliver services, what modalities you might use, but really about supportive interventions of people experiencing trauma and loss. So I applied for the job and was successful and started working back in 2004 with families and friends of missing people. Now, like all social workers, those first few days was really trying to get my head around what it was like to work in a space that I'd never worked in before. I didn't have any colleagues. And when I started in the job, the manager I had at the time was actually on leave. So I was left with a book that was written by a social scientist uh, in the US called Professor Pauline Boss. And she explored what it was like to provide assistance to families of missing people in terms of acknowledging their unresolved loss. Now, most of us in the social work jobs that we have will remember those first times that we met with a certain client or the way in which we tried to develop our skills. And I feel like those first few counselling sessions that I had with families really started to set me on that path of understanding how my practice really was to meet people where they were at, to focus on holding space for them, to understand the grief and loss interventions that we might use with families, but to be really open to allowing families to guide me in terms of what it was they wanted, in terms of coming and connecting with me and providing a safe space for them to talk about a type of loss that wasn't really understood by the rest of the community. So some of the examples that I'm gonna provide today are about the families that i worked with They've given permission for some parts of their stories to be shared. But it really was about two concepts kind of side by side. As a new-ish social worker, you have to really provide space for you to reflect on your own practice, to work out what are the things that kind of rub up, up against you in terms of what you might be uncertain about, about what you feel confident doing, what you don't feel confident doing and how some of your own stories in terms of where you've come from, what life experience you have, are going to shape the way that you meet families who come to you for assistance. And then from there, it's also about ensuring that the practice in which you want to do with families is informed by evidence, is informed by giving yourself time to research concepts, to, to role play, I know everyone who's a social worker or a student social worker will roll their eyes at the, um, at the suggestion of a role play, but really forcing yourself to be vulnerable and say, I'm not entirely sure how to do all of this, but I'll really continue to understand what it is that's going to be best for families and make sure that it's true to who you are as a social worker as well. So two women really stand out in terms of those early years of practice um, in delivering services to families and friends of missing people. Two of them happen to be mums, and that doesn't mean that that there's a grief hierarchy when somebody goes missing, that mums are going to be the most impacted. But for the service that I was running at the time – mums were very much the people that wanted to come forward to talk about the levels of grief and loss they experienced when their adult children were missing. So back then, so 16 years ago, I think the data that we had at the time was that around, um, I'm just trying to think of the exact number, I think it was about 30,000 people who go missing each year in Australia and 16 years on from that, that number has reached to almost 40,000 people who go missing each year in Australia. So we're not talking about those one-off cases. We're not talking about, you know, what we'd kind of have as podcast topics nowadays or true crime dramas. But the fact that up, up um, above, above and beyond about 100 people a day will go missing in Australia. These mums were mums who had long-term missing persons cases. So cases where somebody was missing longer than six months. Initially, when I started working with families, I really focused in on the training that I'd done as a social work student and in my early years of social work practice around grief and loss theories. I understood that there was different ways of conceptualizing the loss. I understood that loss wasn't necessarily something that had to be endured for a certain amount of time. I had been trained in solution-focused brief therapies, but I found very early on that both from an existential perspective but also from a practical perspective, working towards a desired outcome with families wasn't going to work because there was so much that was unknown I couldn't necessarily map out how to work with these families, because we didn't know when the missing person's case was going to be resolved. And a lot of the time, families would come to me to talk about the fact that someone was missing. But more so, they wanted to talk in that family therapy model of wanting to understand their relationship with the person who was no longer here. In terms of kind of, uh, I guess, you know, stretching and refining that practice muscle through those years working with families of missing people, I ended up staying working in that position for probably the next four or five years. And I got an opportunity to not just develop my own skills, but to be brave enough to allow families to tell me when I had done something that didn't quite work. When we had deci- decided on a way forward in terms of talking about their missing person, where they could say to me, you know what, I know that we're focusing at this moment in time about their early years or what's happening with the investigation, but actually, I want to stop talking about this and I want to talk about something else. So, really opening myself up to have the families both guide me, whilst I also guided them around um, thinking about how they could live alongside their losses. The two mums that I worked with um, were provided with both individual counselling, as well as some group-based interventions of being connected with other families of missing people. I noticed that in my practice, families wanted to hear what I understood from the literature, what I had learnt from other families who'd come to see me, but also what had worked and not worked for other families. I found that using almost like a case study approach of talking to them about uh, other families I'd worked with, about what they found most useful on anniversaries, about what they did during coronial inquests, about what they did when they decided to engage or not engage with the media, that that was most profound for families. And that's where I noticed the most movement in terms of the counselling that I was offering to them. I think as I grew as a social worker over those next few years before I moved into the research space. What I noticed was that I had to both be the advocate for families of missing people because they were such invisible stories that they were telling. They were the stories behind the stories. They were the families that were heading up um, media campaigns about searching for their loved ones but they had a lot of hidden pain that nobody wanted to talk to them about. So I not only had to advocate on behalf of the need for services and the need for new practices, new legislation to better support families of missing people, but individually support them in their counselling sessions. One of the most profound movements that I had, particularly with one of these mums, was about spending a number of years with her in terms of talking about managing her distress, about the emotional triggers that would occur as she traveled around um, where she lived. And sometimes thinking that she had sighted her son who by that stage had been missing for seven or eight years. And so in the counseling session, we talked through all of those different mechanisms for managing her distress, for reducing that burden of thinking that she'd seen him, And also then providing the space for her to imagine that if it had have been him, how she might honour that relationship with him if she did see him. She came to me one session and was very excited and um, pulled out her digital camera out of her handbag to show me that she'd been in the city and she'd seen a billboard um, of a Calvin Klein model. And she was entirely convinced that it was her son, that it was her missing son. She'd taken photographs. She'd taken it from all different angles. She'd asked other people if they could take a clear photograph because her hands were shaking at the time as well. And so she moved over in the counselling room to sit next to me and to start kind of scanning through her pictures. And so we talked through the image. And I think for the very first time in my social work career, The practice that I had to show at that stage was really about restraint, was really about allowing her to come to the conclusions that I knew that she would have to come to eventually. So we scanned through the pictures, she zoomed in on different parts. She talked to me about how the ears of the model were exactly the same as her son. The way in which he held himself was the same way as her son the way in which the kind of light kind of captured him. And it was at that stage where like, you know, the Calvin Klein model pictures were kind of, you know, like jeans with no top on sort of thing. And so, you know, we we had a bit of a laugh about how nice the images were. And I'd spent a lot of time really trying to focus in on the that really undervalued skill of silence as a social worker. So she she eventually just kept scanning through without saying anything. And I sat there trying really hard to provide her with the space to engage in that really nice activity of imagining and fantasizing that perhaps this was going to be the end of her trauma, that this was going to be the answer that she'd been searching for for so long. But also knowing when was enough. And so I leant over, I've you know, given my early years in child protection and disability, I was very conscious of my own safety and very conscious of not stepping into people's personal spaces. But I do remember putting my hand on hers and I said to her, these are really lovely photos, but I think that you know just as much as I know that sadly that this isn't him. And she didn't look up at me. She just kept looking down and she said to me, I know it's not him, but I just want to pretend for just a little bit longer. And it was at that moment that I realised that I'd been working so hard to have the right answers, the right evidence that I'd read. I'd read all of the books that were out there. I was engaging in external supervision. I was trying to work out the best way that I could offer the best service. When All that was actually required at that moment was really honouring silence and really honouring the role of honesty as a social worker. I wasn't telling her to give up. I wasn't telling her what she had to do next, but I was providing a little bit of a disruptor within her thought pattern to make her see what was actually happening in front of her without asking her to give up the hope of what that might actually mean. And I think that something profound really happened at that stage and you know even all these years later I still bump into that mum at missing persons events. I still have an opportunity to say hello to her and her husband who are still searching for their son all these years later. But I also think that sometimes as professionals Not necessarily that we overcomplicate things, but they're in the midst of deciding what sort of social work theories we use. That the human connection and also the potential to be vulnerable with ourselves and with clients makes our practice even more detailed and rich than what we anticipate it can actually mean. And so when I teach social work students or when I teach health sciences students, I spend a lot of time talking about what it means to be a good human being first and what it means to understand what your values are and how they'll shape the type of health professional that you might be. Because I think working in missing persons, I've realized that, you know, the goal is not to solve the scenario for them. It's to help people to sit and tolerate the unknown just a little bit better. You know, we don't have magical powers as social workers. And that's sometimes a hard feeling to sit with too, that no matter how much we might try or how good our practice is, we can't take away the pain of others. But we can witness it and we can sit alongside them whilst they endure that as well. So, you know, as I, as I kept working in that space over the years and, you know, there's probably, I don't know, maybe two or three hundred families that I've worked with over the years since then who all in some ways are grieving the loss of a missing person is that once I started to see this repetition of vulnerability and hopefulness and hopelessness in the counselling space, I really wanted to take my social work skills to the next level and really start to think about how can I impact the lives of others through really good health research. And so that's kind of where I started to pull away from that individual social work work and start to think about how can I embrace qualitative research skills and start to think about how that informs how health services better respond to families of missing people, how police better respond to families of missing people. Because it's all of those practical and emotional and sociological aspects that really impact a person's quality of life. And we need to point out the role of advocacy. We need to point out the role of individual counselling. We need to point out how important person-centred support is to people in order for them to live alongside their trauma. You know, we, we can't always minimise it, but we can live, allow people to live alongside it so that there's better outcomes um, for people whilst they wait for news of missing people. Um, You know, being a social worker has put me in that really unique position to be able to better support families because I'm not so constrained by what my job description has to be. And I think that that's always the beauty of being a social worker. It doesn't mean that you're everything to everyone, but you do understand all of those different skill sets being brought together in terms of acknowledging that the way in which we better support people is not just by sitting in a room with them. It's about doing research with people. It's about writing policies by ensuring that there's authentic inclusion of their lived experience. It's about thinking how services can have policies and procedures that better reflect the fact that in these types of losses, they're not going to be resolved within eight or ten sessions. They're going to be lifelong requirements in terms of the support that people need. And I think social workers, more so than any other professionals that I work with in this space, are in a really unique position to see that. So I I think both the merging together of my interest of wanting to do the very best I could do was married together quite nicely with being a social worker and stepping into this space. And I think that that's what I've been able to kind of bend that thread all the way through my career to ensure that there's really good outcomes for families of missing people. And we're
1: back. So let's start off with me asking you this question. Yeah. Because you know I love loss and grief. Absolutely. And you know I love to discuss it in its various shades. So what I wanted to ask you is what makes this type of grief different to, say, a grief as a result of death?
0: Okay. All right. I think Sarah referred to this grief as complicated grief, didn't she? she? And for me, in my understanding of the experience of missing, the issue is that you never get to farewell the person. And so forever, in the re- for the rest of your life, there is the not knowing whether the person is going to come back and you're going to have to reopen your life to make room for that person. I think also there's not the societal cushioning that occurs when a death happens so that you're not enfolded into the, and I hate using the word closure here when it comes to grief, Liz, because... You know, I don't think closure and grief actually marry together terribly well mm. but um but i I do think there's
1: not a farewelling that's mm. possible and uh, like i think I always think of this as a disenfranchised grief, right so yeah. I go straight back to Kenneth doker's work, but there's not the there's when you say the the enfolding around the person. Yeah, because there is no set ritual around how you support someone who's lost someone through, you know, them, them missing, going missing. But there, as a griever, there's no roadmap either, is there? It's yeah. like there is the hopelessness and despair, but also the hope that maybe, like you were saying, they're not dead or I will one day get to see them.
0: That's right. There's actually no making sense of the emotional impact of the grief on you, right? Yes. I think that's part of it as well. Uh, And I think Sarah used a phrase about grief, sitting next to grief. Yeah,
1: I I wrote it down because I've never heard that before and it was like living beside, living beside the grief. Live alongside the grief, I think was what she, she talked about. Which is a really interesting notion because some of the more
0: recent work around the impact of grief has been that grief is absorbed into your everyday understanding mm. of the world around you, that it's, um, it very much becomes a part of how you now see the world. Yes. Whereas that notion that actually it, you live alongside the grief means that the grief is not absorbed.
1: The grief is actually not processed. Right, right. Because there's also that hope that we were talking about earlier. Mm. That is such an interesting way of making sense of it. And Mim, what did you think about some of the for want of a better word, some of the techniques that that Sarah used when she was supporting those mothers? She talked about a few things that were really important in that process. So there
0: Yeah, were, she talked uh, about bearing witness. Bearing witness. About holding space, which you know is one of our favourite social work skills. Yes. Um, she talked about the sitting in silence, didn't she? She that, did. Oh, the use of restraint. Yes. That was what she spoke about. Yeah, which I actually love that notion of having to hold yourself back as a practitioner at times... And even if that is literally just keeping your mouth shut so that the other person has the safe space to be able to express whatever the emotional content is they need to express,
1: right? It's a a gentle approach because every cell and fibre of our being sometimes is, I just want to fix this. I want to take this away from you. And to do that, I might just say something that I think might be helpful, but would fall on deaf ears yeah so that restraint I love that that holding back and giving that person space bearing witness companioning yes the companioning that she was doing so for those of
0: you who I think Sarah didn't use that phrase and that's not a phrase we've used too much on this podcast but for those of you who haven't heard it before companioning is that sitting alongside the grieving person and being present for them in their grief process
1: yeah and she did that so beautifully with that woman, like mm-hmm. that mother's story. Oh, yes, I know. The Calvin Klein model, his ears—I'd take a photo of the ears. It's like, oh, oh, I know. Um, but how beautiful it must have been for that woman to have someone like Sarah sitting with her, not rushing to actually say, "That's not him," you know, "It's not him." That gentleness that she that she was able to use with her, I think is really instructive for our, our social workers who are listening to this. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too.
0: I think the really interesting skills that you use that you often use in grief and loss work and bereavement support work, but, um, but in this area of missing,
1: it is that much more acute, right? Absolutely. And I liked Mim, she also said that a big part of her role was to link to the person that she was working with other parents stories or or things remember she was saying a big part of my role was to say was to respond when 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 her clients would say what have other parents done in this situation yes because it's such a it's a disenfranchised grief and there is no roadmap. you would be very keen to hear how other people have gotten through the most horrible of, of losses. Well, in the one sense, it's normalising.
0: Normalising. But in the yeah. other sense, it's also actually providing an example of how you, in your emotional response or in your future life, will be able to respond or adapt. Right? So it's actually road mapping, I think, is almost a better a better word to describe it, than normalising.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and she did make a brief mention about the groups and I think I would have loved to have heard a little bit more because for that very reason, to be sharing your story with people who very much understand yeah. the complexities that would come with this type of loss, um, I think would be incredibly valuable and, and therapeutic.
0: Yeah, really, really helpful to know that it's not just you out there. And the numbers she talked about were staggering. 40,000 people missing in Australia a did, year. Did she say 100 a week uh, ago missing? Yes, yes. I just thought... Uh, she definitely said 40,000 a year and I just thought, that's actually astounding. Like, those numbers are much bigger than I think any of us ever actually realise in yeah, the everyday.
2: Uh, yeah,
1: I had no
0: idea either. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there It was really interesting as well, that whole first part that Sarah spoke about where she actually tracked her career. And she was talking about that idea, Liz, that you don't always know straight off when you graduate where your niche will be, where your fit will be, right? Um, And she talked about like trying some different things and then finally getting into a position in the Attorney-General's department with missing persons where suddenly it started to pique her interest and make sense in a different way. And you and I were talking before about how we've had some kind of different approaches to how we've come into our areas in our careers, haven't we, like we're, I mean we're different people anyway, but our approaches have also been quite different. How would you summarise
1: your way of finding out your fit? Um in two words yes happy accident <laughs> i think so i've bounced around i've bounced around in positions and i'm one of those people that makes the, the best of whatever i do yeah. so you know when i'm in rehab social work i love rehab social work <laughs> when i'm in palliative care social work i love that too oncology education div- domestic violence i love it but it, it has been a stumbling organic approach I wouldn't actually describe it as a, um, as the how-to uh, to develop a career in social work. A lot of it was fitting around my kids too. When, yeah, you know, which oh, is good. really what happens I to most women, doesn't I can pick them up after, after school uh, yeah. if I take this particular job. Um, yeah, but yours has been quite different, hasn't it? Well, absolutely. My, my career was a really targeted
0: approach. I, um, I started out of university working in disability, Uh, which I never wanted to work in but that's where I got a job at the time and enjoyed it but then had an experience with a friend who lost their mother where I felt that I didn't really know how to respond and I remember at the time really acutely thinking to myself, you need to be better at this. And I I then had a conversation with a friend of mine who was working in a hospital and I said to her, tell me about the sort of work you do. And she told me and she said, look, we've got a locum, a temporary position coming up in HIV in the children's hospital. Would you be interested? And I straight away went, yes. I left my permanent job in disability and went to work in the, in the hospital sector. And from there went to, was, wanted to do more in death and dying, so went to palliative care for a short period of time. And then from there into my first permanent role in intensive care unit and emergency department so and that was the beginning of death and dying and bereavement work for me which then covered palliative care in the community as well as the hospital uh chronic and complex care in hospitals it became the clinical area that i really focused on and what's interesting is that i then did a whole range of things research wise but just this year liz you and i have work together on some writing and work around uh, deaf and dying again. And, um, and I, along with a colleague of ours as well, my interest is peaked again. Mm. And I've realised that this is the clinical area that I've always loved and that now as a researcher I want to go back to. It's really interesting.
1: That is interesting. And, I mean, it is, you and I both believe it's such a privileged work to be doing absolutely um and I think what I what I loved about Sarah's story was you could hear that she believed that too yes like that it was such privileged work that she was doing but back to the career stuff I think like if I could say anything to say new grads yeah I would say go for the smorgasbord yeah for a while um, I mean, there are those social workers that you and I both know that have always wanted to work in a particular area. Yeah, that's why they did social work, and that's why they, you know, that that's their focus. Um, but then there are other people that just, you know, they, you know, that you want to work in the field, but not quite sure where. Just taste the smorgasbord. But also for those for those people who
0: know exactly what they want to do. And that's why they came into social work and are sure that's where they're going to get to at the end. I still always say to those people, go and try some different things. Just in case. Absolutely. That's the beauty of two placements where you get to do some different things. But also, you don't actually know, firstly, what you're really going to love unless you've tried it. Secondly, though, how transferable your skills are. So even though I started in disability and I did a little bit of work in aged care as well, and that was both that was in the community as well as in non-governments, those skills set me up to later work in hospitals and in death and dying. I was honing my skills through those years, even though it wasn't the areas I really desperately wanted to be in, I was honing my skills. So I really always say to students, because of course... It's really hard when students come to you and say, I want this job as my placement. That's always a bit tricky. <laughs> but um, but I, I always do say, just try lots of different things. You, you have no idea. It's You don't know what you don't know. Isn't that the phrase, Liz?
1: You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. so just try it. Yeah. And don't think it's a new grad thing either. Keep on doing it with, throughout your career.
0: Take those um, opportunities. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. we do get a bit stuck. Yes. Get, and then end up getting a bit stale and feeling if we're the suddenly mm. the cynical one in the group and we've seen it and done it before. So sometimes those opportunities come up, whether it's a secondment or another short-term position that you can transfer over to. Mm. They can just give you so many new skills to then bring back and make your work richer.
1: I agree. And yeah. do you know, this is the second episode that we've ended with some career advice for our social workers as well. Well, clearly
0: we have um, a career advice uh, direction or, oh, where, or future career for us,
1: oh, <laughs> right, the, the next podcast.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> how how to? Well, I can't actually be on that one then, because if it was going to be around how you plan your career, <laughs> I could not. I could not co-host that with you authentically. I could not.
0: Listeners, just hang out there for the podcast. Um, uh, planning your career: the smorgasbord <laughs> with Liz Murphy. <laughs> That's <right. laughs> So I guess we should say farewell to we should. our listeners. We're going to link um, Sarah's publications um, to, on our website to this episode so that you can read more about the work that she's done. She's done a lot of media um, coverage as well, so she is the go-to missing persons person. So um, I think that if you're really interested in this area, definitely her work is something that you might want to look up. Uh, and so before we head off, we want to say thank you to our producers, Ben Joseph and Justin Stesch, and our journalism intern, Hamish Cole, who has been doing all the fantastic uh, Instagram grabs that uh, you have featured quite heavily in Liz, which is awesome, and as well as um, for our social media posts and things like that. And uh, it's been really great to see how many of you have been responding to us on Twitter and Instagram. It's been fantastic.
1: Um, and... I just want to say we can thank our producers yes totally agree but are they under a quilt like you and I are now no are they losing oxygen as <laughs> we speak no no it is about 40 degrees under this quilt and it is win- getting into winter everyone just so you're aware so yeah, I want to thank ourselves for this one. This is I like would agree it to a whole... you, Oh, because that's right, we can actually be in presence with each other because they've relaxed some of the COVID laws. So not we're pretty,
0: we're very in presence with each other right now under a quilt, still socially distant, but we are under a quilt recording this. So thank you to you, Liz.
1: Look, oh, my pleasure, and that's how much we love you, listeners. We do, we yes. do.
0: Thank you, everyone. Take care of yourselves. See you next time.
1: Bye.